Welcome to the Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jere, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. A very warm welcome to yet another edition of uh, our special series that we are running in conjunction with uh, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD. Uh, this is, of course, the 15th session and uh, fascinating stuff indeed. Well, some of us are coming to you from uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, my name is Arnold Sagawa. I'm not alone. As always, uh, my co-hosts, uh, Dumi Jere in Johannesburg, uh, Maggie Mutesi joins us from uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Yes, she's also joined by someone. Uh, we do have uh, Dr. Hanvian Kurunziza, who is the chief CRAS, uh, Commodities Branch. This is, of course, at the Division on uh, International Trade and Commodities at uh, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, Hangtad. Uh, greetings to you all. Uh, Maggie, you're together with uh, Dr. Kurunziza. Maybe uh, uh, it's only fair that uh, uh, you kick us off with uh, how the sessions are progressing and uh, what are some of uh, the developments that have come from uh, yesterday. Uh, thank you very much, Arnold, and it's very good to have you on our podcast today, Dr. Moziza. Thank you. Yeah, so um, so much, of course, happened, but uh, one thing that stood out has been resilience in times like these, um, especially for us, it hits back home, you know, like we've been saying in Africa, and um, it would be just fair to hand over to Dr. Moziza. When we say resilience in Africa, especially in commodities, uh, dependent countries, this is most of the countries we have back home. Either they're into coffee, they're into minerals or oil. What does this really mean for African countries? Just break down that resilience for us, for the audience that is listening. Okay. Thank you very much, Arnold. And uh, thank you, Maggie. Uh, we are uh, happy to be speaking to you. I'll try to explain what we mean by resilience. When you say resilience, it's uh, because most African countries are vulnerable to a number of shocks. So I'll give examples. The first vulnerability is a price uh, vulnerability. Almost all African countries are dependent on uh, the export of primary commodities. So this could be coffee, could be oil, could be copper. Those commodities are traded in international markets. Prices are uh, set in those international markets. So these countries do not have any say in uh, the setting of the price. So these prices just vary from a month to the next. They can vary by 10% or more. Now, what happens to these countries that are so dependent? That means this country's export revenue is going also to vary. That's what we call volatility. These prices are volatile, so that means these countries' incomes are also volatile. So if you are a country like Zambia and the price of copper just declines by uh, 40%, so that means your own revenue that you use to invest in the country, it's also declined by 40%. So that is what we call vulnerability to price shocks. There is also another form of vulnerability, which is uh, on the import side. A number of countries depend on uh, imports of uh, food. I would give the example of Ethiopia, even though it is not fully dependent, but Ethiopia imports quite an important amount of food. Now, again, when the price of food, mostly cereals, really, that's uh, what uh, 
what comes as, uh, if you want a summary of food traded on international market. Now, when the price of cereals just increases like uh, it has been for the last 12 months, it has increased by more than 30%. That means you need to have 30% more income to import the same quantity of food that you've been importing. So where do you get this money from? So that means there is a threat to your own uh, food security because sometimes you don't have this money to meet the food, I mean, the, the price increase. I guess for me, it's uh, very, really important because uh, we, we are talking about this in a time when we have the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, of course, also ratified and uh, kicked off during the coronavirus pandemic. Until now, there are questions on, uh, are we really trading? Are we really open? But with uh, this AFCFT and conversations like these, how does Africa get a fair share? In global trade? Thank you for uh, the question. I think what uh, CFTA really brought to African countries is scale. Because when you look at uh, many African countries, economic, they are very small. I mean, economically speaking, because they might be huge in size, but uh, in terms of economy, they are small. So if you want to trade in uh, internationally, you need to have some size. If you want to produce uh, in a more competitive way, you need to have scale. I think what the CFTA brings is this scale. Now, if countries want to go together to produce together, now they have a chance. If countries now to want to trade with each other, rather than trading thousands of miles away, they have a possibility. But of course, as we all know, we see what happens when it comes to implementation. Will countries actually seize this opportunity? Because one problem that I already see is uh, production. You can't trade what you don't have. First of all, countries have to, to be able to produce tradable goods and services, of course, uh, before they really uh, can take advantage of uh, uh, entities uh, such as the uh, CFTA. So it's an opportunity that is there, but it doesn't mean that because there is an opportunity that people are going to benefit. For people to benefit, they need to produce more, produce better, and probably produce uh, products that are different from what they've been producing. So I think that is the paradigm change that we need to see in African countries in order to benefit from uh, the CFTA. I really enjoy the point that you're talking about, uh, particularly around trading with our neighbors and finding out what it is that we can possibly send to them or produce yeah. for them. And they also do the same on us. Because I remember watching this documentary on yeah. uh, Costa Rica. And okay. at some point, it seemed as if yeah. food commodities represented yeah. the biggest number, almost 90% of their exports. And then what the country then did, it then moved from just food commodities and their exportation. And they focused on uh, producing electronic micro circuits and machine parts and accessories. And I thought that was a very great transformation of uh, a country that moved away from the commodity side to looking at what else is it that looking at our resources we can actually produce. And yesterday we also spoke to Isabel, the yeah. Deputy Secretary General, and she mentioned something in passing about Botswana and how it managed to move up the diamond value chain. So not just yeah. uh, extracting, but also beneficiation. 
I don't know if I said yeah. it correctly, but yeah, adding value essentially to yeah. the diamonds that they more. get. Yeah. So I guess um, my question really would be how many countries, when you really look at it, um, in Africa, the yeah. Oceania, Asia, and so forth, have successfully yeah. moved on from commodity dependence and successfully graduated into other forms of transformation? That's a great question. I like your example of uh, Costa Rica because I love it. I've been using that example to illustrate that it is actually possible to get uh, out of the commodity uh, dependence trap. I don't know whether you've read our report because we use exactly that example in a report that we just uh, published a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, our own secretary general, the one who started her job yesterday, she comes from Costa Rica. And uh, she made mention, yeah, the same case uh, of Costa Rica, that they did it. So, of course, your question is, uh, I mean, if I take it literally, I can't answer it because you're asking me how many countries I don't know. Oh, yes. What (laughs) I know, (laughs) what I know, I can give you uh, an answer. Uh, I can tell you that in Africa, we don't have many. Be honest, I don't know of any good case in Africa. But do you think it's possible? No, of course it is possible. It and is what possible. will it take? Look at the successful cases. Again, when you take a look at our report, we document some successful cases. We mentioned Botswana, but Botswana is tricky. What they did was really to start adding value to diamonds, by cutting, polishing. Recently, this is very recent. It's probably what, I don't know, less than 10 years old, maybe five, five to 10 years old. So it's a new move. But when you look at the effect itself, it's relatively limited so far. When you look at the number of jobs created, for example, I don't think there are even 1,000 jobs. So we cannot actually call it a success story, can we? People get overjoyed when they talk about Botswana. Because I think they struggle, we all struggle to find um, a successful in Africa. Okay. We struggle. We don't find any. So that's why we just pick, uh, I mean, I'm not uh, saying that Botswana is not successful, but I'm just saying that it's a relatively limited success. Okay? Well, okay. When you compare it with cases like Costa Rica, as you mm. said, there are other cases. Look at Malaysia, mm. look at Indonesia, look at Oman. There are cases, and when you take a look at our report, I recommend it to Maggie, we document those cases. So how do you do it is try to really study seriously the cases of successful countries like Costa Rica. What did they do? They did many things. I'm not going to say everything they did. I wouldn't even be able to, but I'll just give you a few examples. First of all, they made a political decision. Okay, And I think that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. It starts with politics. Just as a politician, you say, I want my country to become this. And here I'm not talking about these famous visions that you find in every African country. It's really, they are not serious. It's something that is well thought. First of all, you make this political decision, but you mean it. Okay. Mm -hmm. What is the trick? The trick is that the objective is a very long time objective. But the political terms are very short, relatively short. So basically, Hmm. you make a decision of something that you will not necessarily benefit from as a politician. And you know politicians, uh, this is not in politicians' DNA, okay? They need something, you know, quick, 
that they can show, that they can say, I did that. No. So when you want to escape from this commodity trap, you aim very long term. So mm-hmm. Costa Rica started probably in the 60s, but it's really in the 80s that we started to see the results, the benefits. So what they did was, once the decision is made, how do you put in place the institutions that are going to make it possible? So you make a decision, but then you have to enable your own institutions to be able to accompany the process. So when I say institutions, these are economic institutions, for example, macroeconomic stability. How are you going to guarantee, for example, that FDI comes in and that uh, they repatriate their uh, profits, uh, that they are protected, okay? Exchange rates, how do you guarantee a stable exchange rate? Because Costa Rica did it with external, you know, external capital. And I think that's what many successful uh, countries did, probably with some, uh, some exceptions. Okay, then who is going to do it? So now that is human capital. Okay, they did all that. So train people, uh, make sure they are healthy. Okay, these are things that we don't put together all these dots. We often consider these things separately, but all these things are uh, interrelated. And then create infrastructure. You need infrastructure. You need reliable electricity. Okay. You need a reliable communication system. But really make it in an integrated way so that one helps the other. And then you see the result. First of all, you start attracting uh, foreign capital because they see all these things uh, they are in place. So they come. You've touched on another issue that I wanted to bring in. Um, at the beginning, you know, whenever you're talking to a seasoned economist like yourself, it, it's always fair to uh, understand their uh, philosophical leaning, you know, classical, neoclassical, monetarists, uh, Austrian school, name it. Um, as LDs, uh, low developed countries that are still exporting a lot of commodities, what's your take on this? If I'm borrowing your words, our export basket is not as diversified as we would want it to. I mean, it looks good on paper to, uh, you know, have the the seasoned uh, Dr. Nkurunziza come and address our policymakers and tell them about diversifying export baskets. Yes. Do they do it? Maybe they do not. Now, I need some expert guidance from someone as seasoned as yourself. Is the thinking of absolute advantage still resonating in this day and age at a time where uh, commodity exporters uh, sitting in sub-Saharan Africa are facing shocks left, right and center? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Thank you for this interesting question. I think as an economist, academic experience, practical experience, especially with policymakers, I don't make policy, I advise policymakers, I would uh, refrain from getting lost into these economic schools. And I know, of course, your question was not about that. And, uh, you know, looking at concepts, but also looking at uh, reality. Because this invisible hand, I don't think many people now believe really in that. I mean, if we take the concept in its absolute sense, that mm. things will end by themselves. Uh, no, come on, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Comparative advantage. There is, of course, a country might have a comparative advantage. But what we have observed is that you can't just say, I just have a comparative advantage here. So this is the only thing I can do. No, comparative advantage can be created. You can create your comparative advantage. 
you can help your uh, comparative advantage. What I told you about uh, Costa Rica, to start with, did not have a comparative advantage in uh, uh, microcircuit production or medical instruments because now they, they are big in the production of medical instruments. No, it's what I told you. Comparative advantage should be taken in a wider sense, which means it's not just what you have. It's not just the natural resource that you have. It's also the soft resources that you have, okay? Soft resources meaning it's your institutions, it's your people, for example. How good are your engineers? Uh, for example, let me again uh, use uh, Costa Rica. Costa Rica trained these guys who were uh, working uh, to produce microcircuits. Then somehow, I think the factory closed for some reason. Now, because these guys who were, had been working there were so well trained, they were able to quickly retrain them mm. into the production of medical instruments, mm. okay? Because they had a very good uh, training, very good education. So this is the role of, of education. So now the country found itself with a comparative advantage in uh, the production of uh, all these uh, kind of sophisticated products. But, I mean, when you look at the country nineteen in the 60s, no, it was... Uh, a developing country like uh, any other, depending on coffee and uh, bananas. Okay, so let's use these concepts, comparative advantage, in a more uh, way. comparative way. Yeah, <laughs> in a smarter, in a smarter way. I'm not denying that. Yeah, there are countries that are really could be good uh, producing agriculture commodities, food commodities. We have many in Africa, uh, Congo. For example, Zambia, for example, they have huge land, but you see the same, even Nigeria, uh, even Nigeria, but you see the same countries importing at least a big chunk of their food. It doesn't make sense, okay? So these countries should just look inward and see that there are things they could do that they are not doing. Now, comparative advantage, maybe it will come to help a little bit, but don't sit down and think that it is comparative advantage that is making you not produce uh, good X uh, or Y because you can you can generate, you can create, you can help. I mean, it's interesting to hear the views. Um, sometimes the economics don't work different, you know, for different economies. This is from what I'm understanding. But I want to shift a little bit away from commodities and get into um same topic that actually if we get away from oil, we are also transitioning into green energy. One of the conversations that is being also discussed here. And um, um, I want to economically turn it down for our listeners. When they say green energy, to my understanding, it's like Africa is already green. Is you it? could say 50% is green. This is what I want. This is why I wanted to break it down for us. When they say Africa, you know, um, we're going to green energy, does it mean that we have competitive advantage? Again, I'm bringing in that because we haven't invested massively into nuclear. What we've heard or what we've read is that countries like Japan and Europe that have already invested into nuclear have to disinvest to be able to invest into green energy. Now, for a continent that hasn't gone the other way, does it give us a leverage when it comes to transitioning into green energy? Thank you, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, you transition where you are somewhere. Mm. Okay. Mm. Let's look first at Africa's energy mm. matrix. What's the energy matrix now in Africa? 
where does Africa draw its energy from? Yeah. Mostly it's uh, fossil fuels. Mm. So it's oil, a bit of gas now, a few countries, Mozambique, uh, Algeria, in the north, Egypt. But uh, some countries have hydro energy, but it's really mostly from fossil fuels. Mm. So fossil fuels is oil and gas. Those are fossil fuels. Now, it's even a problem in Africa because the proportion of people who have access to energy mm. is still very low. So that's why I kind of smile when we talk about transitioning. Because you transition when you are ready. Let's say if every African or 80% of Africans had access to energy, to a certain type of energy, yes, of course, you'll be talking of transitioning because it means you want to leave that one behind, so you want to go into towards another source. Mm. Now, having said this, having said this, we can look at the energy issue from different perspectives. What I just said now is from a consumer perspective, meaning Africans as consumers of energy. Cars, how do you power your cars? How do you power your uh, electric stations? How, lighting, you need lighting in your house. Usually, in many countries, it's from oil. So it's a thermal, basically, thermal stations. A bit of hydro in some countries. But from the other side of the coin is the many African countries that depend on oil exports. So here I'm talking about the Nigerias, the Congos, the Angolas, and so on and so forth. These countries now are the ones that might be having a problem transitioning. Mm. When we say transitioning, it's really transitioning from that dependence, dependence on uh, uh, on oil, on mm. fossil fuels, into something else. Now, these countries have a big, big problem because they are so dependent. When you look at Angola, for example, more than 95% of its export revenue Total export revenue comes from oil. Okay. So now you are telling this country now to scale down or to abandon its uh, oil fossil fuel and uh, use something else. I'm being careful here because if Angola has oil, it doesn't mean that it has greener sources of energy in the same quantity. No. Uh, we were talking of comparative advantage. Maybe they have a comparative advantage in uh, Oil, the production of oil as a oil petrol as a fossil fuel, but they don't necessarily have the comparative advantage in uh, producing uh, uh, solar energy. So that's the problem. That is, so what do they do if they don't produce and export oil? What do they do? Where are they going to get their uh, export revenue? The money that they use to invest to pay for. Uh, uh, you know, medical supplies, okay? So that's the key problem. Now, if this movement accelerates and uh, people now really walk away from uh, using uh, fossil fuels, countries will have, there's a technical term, it's called stranding. They're going to strand their assets. Mm. Oil is going to be stranded. So it means you have it, but it's not useful. No one wants it. Many people now are not interested in investing in oil because they think if they put their money there, they're not sure they'll be able to make profit. 
in 10, 20 years' time. Some investors, especially institutional investors, are even diverting out of the oil sector. If you look at Norway, for example, uh, the sovereign fund of Norway, which uh, is the biggest in the world, more than $1 trillion, they have been diverting from the oil sector because it's a way of showing that they are caring for uh, the planet, for climate change, so they wouldn't continue to invest in a, in a sector that is polluting because oil is polluting. Okay? So when we come now to Africa, these are the questions we should be uh, thinking about now. What do we do tomorrow when we can no more rely on our fossil fuels? Now, to complete the argument, there are resources in Africa that countries could transition uh, into. Hydroelectricity is one of them. I'm sure you've heard of uh, the Inga Dam over the Congo. If they could complete the whole series of Inga, because there is Inga 1, 2, 3, I think up to 5, Yes, Congo itself could power a large part of Africa if they could invest in their hydroelectric uh, potential. So that is one. Solar. There is potential in, uh, in investing in solar and producing uh, electricity out of the solar sector. When we go to other, even other African countries, solar can be, uh, can be a good source of energy, which is green. Okay, Solar is green. We talked about nuclear. There are, of course, there are uh, issues with nuclear. Some countries want to get out of it. Uh, they are being encouraged to get out of it. Um, wind there is wind. Wind energy. It's another opportunity. Countries like Denmark, uh, that is advanced in this area. So, and the technologies are there. So, there are opportunities. But I'm not sure we are at that stage thinking about where do we go? As Africa. As Africa. We are literally not ready. Yeah, I don't think so. But uh, this is really something we need. I mean, Africa needs to be thinking about today. So maybe, yeah, just that go straight into green energy. Uh, Why not? Definitely. Uh, Dr. Ngorzinziza, uh, thank you again for uh, uh, squeezing in time uh, to uh, just address some of these very pertinent issues. Um, uh, that was uh, Dr. Hanvier Ngorzinziza, who's the chief CRAS Commodities Branch at uh, the Division of International Trade and Commodities at UNCTAD. I'm Arnold Sagawa. Thank you again for making time to listen to uh, all the developments that are coming from Geneva, Switzerland. Um, that's, of course, in line with the UNCTAD 15. Remember, the forum is uh, going forward as we speak right now and uh, Maggie Mutasi uh, thank you again Maggie for uh, all the assistance and uh, standing and holding the fort in Switzerland um, uh, also many thanks to Adumi Jerry remember these particular series are in conjunction with uh, Anktad who are our partners here uh, in uh, trying to uh, bring you all the developments as they happen in real time, of course, in line with the Global Commodities Forum. Uh, if you missed anything in the course of the day, be sure to check out the website. That's uh, mansamedia.africa for me and the entire crew. Have a lovely one. The Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts, Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jerry, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. Oh,